Hello and welcome to Dress Fancy, the podcast devoted to the history, analysis and sheer excitement of fancy dress in its many guises. I'm Lucy Clayton and I'm here with Dr. Benjamin Wilde for another in-depth discussion about a few of our favourite things. As always, you can follow the images which accompany this conversation on our Instagram feed at Dress Fancy Podcast. Now, in episode eight, we looked at how fancy dress is often used as a tool in fiction to shape stories, usually for the worse. We learned that moments in costume are often a prelude to catastrophe. But today, we're going to be moving beyond the page to examine the impact and influence of fiction on fancy dress trends over the years. So there's a lot less doom and demise in this episode. Why do certain characters hold enduring appeal? What qualities make us want to copy costumes? And what stories capture our imagination enough to want to mirror them in real life events? And I think a really good place to start our discussion is to think about a little lady that we mentioned in episode eight, (laughs) namely Alice in Wonderland. And the context here, of course, was the Mandalay Ball, which, alas, all went wrong for Mrs. De Winter. But of course, it should have been an Alice in Wonderland party. Mm -hmm. And I think you can't help but wondering, maybe it should have been. Um, (laughs) Very different story. It is a very different story. But I think Alice in Wonderland is a really good place to start in thinking about the enduring appeal of certain characters in fancy dress and why that should be so. And I think there are essentially maybe three main reasons why Alice and others of her ilk would appeal. I think the first is that if we think about Alice, just by mentioning it, I would kind of guess without looking to our Instagram that all of our listeners have this indelible image. Yeah, very of, clear uh, picture in your mind. Exactly so. So Alice in their mind. So costume then, as it's described in literature, defines characters and that makes them easy to imitate or identifiable and I suppose easy to um, imitate. The second reason, I suppose, and we've talked about this before, mainly from my perspective. (laughs) um, Poor Ben. But the idea of the costume fail. And I think if you're going to a fancy dress entertainment as an identifiable character, you're less likely to have the costume fail because people will recognise who you are. So Alice and her contemporaries are a very safe choice, aren't they? I think so. No one's ever gone, what's that blue dress you've got on? Or going as a train driver, <laughs> um, which I won't I won't go back to. Um, but I think the third reason, and this might be more internal to the wearer, is the idea that we've again conjured with before of world building and world making. So the more identifiable the character is to impersonate, the more that you can maybe feel that you are actually taking possession of that role, mm-hmm. that you are empowering yourself, transforming yourself to be, whether it's an Alice in Wonderland or, or whoever it might be. I think that that's easier to achieve, I think. I once had an Alice in Wonderland themed Ooh. party, or rather we went to an event. It was a National Trust event, mm. actually, a Fate Champetra at Stourhead. Ooh. And my crew, under strict instructions, obviously, for me. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> obviously. No choice was allowed. <laughs> All went as Alice in Wonderland. But I have to confess, I've never particularly liked Alice as a costume. No. I find her very vanilla and not that interesting. So I, I was the queen of hearts. Ooh, I think that's, that's in <laughs> some ways creatively, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's yeah. far more interesting. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we ended up having two Alices. Victoria and my sister were both Alices. Ooh. Quite sort of different takes. So actually, you, creatively, it is interesting because you can, of course, you know, put your own personality and your own style into it as they both did. But we also had Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Oh, also, it was great. And we had a tea party to start with yeah. before we all, you know, got really drunk. Um, 
And interestingly, we had props so that we looked, to your point about world building, yeah. so that we looked very identifiable mm. as a gang. We also had props. So we had flamingos on sticks for the sort of flamingo croquet oh, thing, which idea. my grandfather cut out for me. Oh, my 92-year-old grandfather. Uh, so he you wasn't literally that press ganged everybody into it. Yeah, everyone was part of it. <laughs> <laughs> but that was taken from the sort of silhouettes on sticks yes. was taken from that Tim Walker photograph. Or there's a series of them That's with children yes. where they've got insects as cutouts. Oh, so it's so a good. very highly stylized yeah. version. I mean, there was no question mm. that everyone at that event knew exactly what we mm. were. It was very there's no interpretation required. There's yeah. nothing clever about it. It's just really obvious. But I, th- I think again, the fact that when we think of Alice, we're thinking of I mean, I suppose it's the John Tenniel illustrations yes. from the 19th yeah. century that make Alice a sort of identifiable figure. But it's the blonde hair, it's the bow, it's the sort of blue sort of pinafore. And I think in some ways that does enable you to then have a little bit of personal experimentation because as long as you've got right, as long those as you're using the key elements, exactly, of yeah. course. And yes. I think this is a point that Kira Vaklovic picks up on. She's written about Alice as this sort of trend doyen. Right. And how she has become sort of indelible in, in our mind. And she focuses on it in an article that she's written, Alice's hair, or at least the role of hair in the Alice in Wonderland stories, which mm-hmm. seems quite curious. But when curiosa you... and curious. Exactly. <laughs> did you see what I did there? You d- yeah, I did. I did. That was beautiful. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, <laughs> sorry, carry on. Uh, yeah, you've interrupted my phone <laughs> now, know, but there was, it was worth it. That was good. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the, the role that sort of hair plays in these stories. So you have lots of people either pulling Alice's hair, including the, the dreaded Queen of Hearts, obviously not dreaded when it, um, starred by Lucy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Pretty mean to everyone. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, yeah, dragging your, your grandfather in. Yeah. yeah, that kind of was. But also wigs are mentioned as well. But she focuses on the fact that all of these references in the stories then, as I suppose, are, as I mentioned, picked up by sort of Tenniel, and then it becomes the sort of the trope. If we're yep. thinking of Alice, if we're constructing her in our mind, we need the hair, we need the yeah, bow. Yeah, need all of it. Exactly. Mm. And so from that point, you can then have, I mean, I hate to use the word iconic, but this image that people understand, it resonates. So then in your fancy dress garb, you can then yeah. impersonate and get it right, I guess. My sister is a brunette, so she had to wear a very hideous blonde long blonde nylon wig well you you say that i mean it was interesting again in the in vakovic's article that apparently and i'm not sure there is actually any literary pretext people (laughs) who know the stories will will know better than me but apparently in early versions alice's hair was actually blue but in 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 a danish version the illustration she was actually a brunette oh so if you'd gone as should have gone exactly yeah oh she'll be gutted she looks a little bit like she was in drag to be honest (laughs) (laughs) she'll never forgive me for saying that it's true okay so clearly things to copy are are very important and we've Mm. seen that again recently haven't we we talked about the handmaidens that's true yeah outfits in our original our first episode Mm. dress fancy about using costume as a tool for protest and actually there's something very similar isn't there if you think about those handmaidens outfits Mm. from atwood story there's something interesting about a block primary colour. So yes. in that example, obviously it's red. Yeah. In Alice, it's blue. But then the white of the pinnacle, mm. the white of the hat, its simplicity is mm. almost stark, isn't it? Which is, yeah. of course, what makes it so powerful. Mm. What makes that possibly attractive is that it, it's also standing out. Mm. You've got, you know, this sort of iconic, I'm using that word again, but the, the key characteristics of this individual. But obviously, I suppose there might be a sense of when anyone's dressing for a fancy dress ball, 
you do want to stand out. You yeah. do want to gain attention. So if it's red, if it's blue, there's that added sort yeah. of attraction, I suppose, possibly. And I think that point has been pursued more widely, thinking about an exhibition and a book that accompanied it by Colleen Hill mm. called Fairy Tale Fashion a couple of years ago. Although it's an exhibition, it's a book that doesn't directly explore fancy dress, it is conjuring this idea of fairy tales, so from Cinderella, and what, again, makes them attractive to us. And she's suggesting that it's the vividness of the characters the way they're described, the way yeah. that they evolve as individuals, but also their dress, which is often, if we think about fairy tales, those clothing props have a really important role. Cinderella, the shoe, etc. Mm-hmm. Red um, Riding Hood, the cape. Exactly. The, yeah. So, And that allows readers, I think, to, again, form in their own minds a very strong connection to these characters, but then also to move that relationship into reality. Mm. You've then got, as you say, the props that can then be used instantly in fancy dress. And the use of fairy tale, of course, fairy tales are historically the sort of first stories Mm. you hear as a child in that sort of audible, that kind of that sense that you're read to rather than Mm. reading yourself. And equally, your first experiences of dressing up are, of course, in childhood. Mm. So actually, there is a kind of direct connection between Mm. those early stories that you hear and that you love and that are familiar, and then dressing up to emulate Mm. them. That's very sort of simple. And Alice is just a kind of slightly more sophisticated version of that in a way. And I'm thinking actually of a a kind of obvious point is, is, is you're making that, that of course, with these fairy tales, they would have started as oral Mm. stories, with a lot of them collected by the Grimm brothers in the 19th century. So again, I think that's why we're maybe drawn to them, because as an oral story, you have that rich embellishment, that description. And you have to imagine it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And I think that's just endured in the later iterations that have come down to us. And I suppose this point about having something that is indelible in the mind and the way that literature can plant those seeds that then we develop as we so choose, whether we want the spectacle or the role play and and world building, is developed really beautifully in a fancy dress catalogue that was produced by a London supplier called Weldon's in the kind of late 1920s, early 1930s. And I maintain, I I sort of bought this recently, I maintain that it's a a crucial (laughs) primary source, but it's really just (laughs) indulgent on my part. How Um, many hours have you spent just having a nice time looking at it? Necessary research, so hours don't matter. No, it doesn't. It's just devoted. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Just looking through this book, many hours possibly, of Glee and doing so, there are so many costumes which have been influenced by, well, all sorts of literature. I mean, it's broader sense. So plays, nursery rhymes, fairy tales. So just sort of giving you a flavour. We'll have some of these. We'll talk them through in a moment. But we'll have many more illustrated on the Instagram feed. So we have David Copperfield, Robin Hood, Anna Maid Marian, Sinbad, Tom the Piper's son, if you know your little nursery rhymes. But then some that are a little bit more specific. So Elizabethan Sea Captain, Twelfth Night, um, <laughs> which is quite interesting. And again, this influence between other contemporary live performance. So here from the Pirates of Penzance, a, a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta, a policeman and pirate, which in some ways seem, when you look at the costumes, just quite nondescript. There's quite often a female and male counterpart, mm, isn't there, in, yeah. in the Weldon's catalogue, which is just makes it even more charming, I yeah. think, the idea that it's like, and here's what he's wearing. It, exactly, yeah. <laughs> sort of, bit, like, yeah. It's quite seal, isn't mm, it? Yes. <laughs> Seal these are, these are your, Clooms, yeah, these are your sort of proto kind of yeah. Heidi Clooms. 
<laughs> but I think actually, as you were, um, when you mentioned Tweedledum and Tweedledee, I, I was kind of thinking, I wonder if that's another reason why, with Alice in particular and that story, there is the appeal, at least for fancy dress, because you've got this cast of characters, so it's very easy to pair up. Yes, and you're connected, and so exactly. you, it's already a party, yeah. really, before you've even got in the car. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And we should say that we're going to do a whole special indulgent mm. episode about the Weldon's catalogue. because So it's... my hours of research will be vindicated. <laughs> <laughs> because it is really special and is such a kind of moment in time. Mm. But what's interesting about it is, for me, the huge number of costumes mm. in those examples anyway. Because how many are... There's like hundreds, isn't there, in the... Oh, easily. I mean, surprisingly, I haven't counted them, <laughs> um, the number of t- hours I've looked at. But I, I mean, I would say at least 150. Yeah, and that's conservative. And then there are other ones that have the kids as well. And then yeah. there's like 300. Inside. So there's lots of them. Mm. They're very of their time, some of them, aren't they? Yeah, so, and I think they very uh, So well. we'll do a whole episode because it's we don't want to waste it here. Yeah. So what we're going to do instead is just talk about some very specific mm. examples, which we'll show you as well. Yeah. So I, I think one of my favourites is a Robin Hood, which in some ways is quite conventional. He's sort of dressed... I would say head to toe, but it's actually not to the toes at all. It's actually quite a sort of thigh revealing. Um, <laughs> I think tunic. thighs are essential to both Robin Hood and Peter Pan. And, and this guy actually does have, <laughs> you know, reasonably convincing thighs. It's I, a drawing, I, Ben. Ben, it's a drawing. <laughs> it is a drawing, but it's obviously just visualising it very thoroughly for the wearer. But it is interesting, though, actually, commenting as I now. I'm just, this is going to be this reverie for Weldon's. Um, Lucy, you might need to rein me in. Okay. Um, but just looking at his sort of facial hair, he's got the long sort of sculpted locks as you'd associate if you're thinking about tombs or, or whatever from the sort of medieval period. Yeah. He's also got a little sort of strip of beard in a slightly rascally way, as right. you might well, as you imagine. Would expect. Exactly. Good. So anyway, he's wearing this tunic, which is sort of stitched across the chest with a pretty hefty belt and a, a nice sort of... I imagine it to be silver buckle. So maybe actually he's sort of purloined something. He's already he's, nicked something. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. he hasn't quite given that back to the poor. He wants to wear it himself. But then has this wonderful hat with a feather rakishly sort of placed in the crown. So Perfect. I, All the elements are I there. think so. We then have, and this is again quite interesting because there's an example that I can relate it to, a Kate Greenaway girl. Mm. And Kate Greenaway was a illustrator in, in sort of 19th century. And her illustrations, both of um, uh, female and male characters, tend to be quite sort of quite floral in terms of what they're wearing, quite sort of light sort of colour, so pale blues and pale pinks. And so here you've got a, I'm not quite sure what the age of the lady or, or girl, but wearing a sort of long polka dot dress with sort of frills around the rounded neckline, little purse, and this is very similar to a costume that survives in the collection of the Museum of London, which is sort of a printed pink and blue cotton gown, not incidentally from Weldon's. But again, I think as much as people obviously are using Weldon's to purchase their costumes, what's also interesting and just makes the little catalogue that I've got even more delightful, <laughs> someone's written their name at the top, but you've got also little notes as though we want this character inspired by our literature and we're using maybe Weldon's as a way to influence us, but actually we're going to make it ourselves. Make it ourselves. Yeah. And Kate Greenaway's style was obviously very popular mm. in illustrations, but also almost sort of hyper-feminine, isn't Absolutely, it? Even yeah. for the both for girls and boys, yeah. it's a very, mm. you know, if you can put a frill on it, 
she would, it would or, be there. Yeah. or flower or whatever. Even better so, if it's a double frill, yeah. A double frill, yeah. I mean, woman after my own heart. <laughs> <laughs> that does actually remind me, I was reading something recently about Queen Victoria mm. and her prime minister at the time, this is the very beginning of her reign, and her prime minister sort of suggests that what the queen is wearing is a little bit sort of costume ball. And the queen actually... I don't know whether sort of playfully or actually sort of chastises her prime minister and says, oh, no, no, this is actually sort of very current, that floral and, and sort of flowers decorating dresses is sort of all the rage. Wow. Um, so stick it. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to and start if, yeah, your if, reign, if, I feel. I think so. Dress for the job you want. <laughs> Who else have we got from the Weldon's catalogue? Another one is, a again, the sort of Shakespearean characters. So Hamlet... I have to say, not necessarily as convincing in that sort of Hamlet <laughs> is just sort of your, in some way, sort of stereotypical Tudor with the sort of doublet and hose. So it, it's a bit generic. And I think in some ways, it's almost as though they've got a, a standard costume already. And they thought, well, actually, how can we market this? Sure. And so that's, again, with the sort of pirate from Twelfth Night. It's a pirate. But they've obviously <laughs> just put Twelfth Night. Racket. <laughs> yeah, to make it a little bit more commercial, I think, probably. Right. Yeah. And I think for me, what's so interesting about looking at these drawings in the catalogue is that they feel, they're obviously timeless mm. subjects. As you say, they're from literature of a huge swathe of time, but they are so very of their moment. They look very fashionable for then, which yes. I think is why they really appeal to us now as sort mm. of moments of fashion history is that they are very stylish. Yeah. and. Part of it is just because they're illustrations as opposed mm. to anything else. So if you compare it to the sort of, I guess, Jane Asher's 1980s <laughs> yes. book, which I, I'm sure we had at home mm. growing up, which has not perhaps stood the test of time no, as well. That's probably fair. Yeah. Largely because they're photographs of mm. sort of bratty kids yeah. in lots of crepe paper. <laughs> but the Weldon's illustrations just look mm. so perfectly, mm. stylishly, snazzy mm. and actually also so simple and I guess it's just because they're simple line drawings it's block colour again yeah. they just look like fancy dress really cleaned up mm. and really stylishly yeah, rendered I think compelling because as you say you most of us probably realise that if we've whether we've hired from a fancy dress supplier or even looked online we're not talking about the same materials that would necessarily be used to make our daily clothing because fancy dress needs to be washable yeah. it's worn for a short period of time so a photograph of that isn't necessarily going to look particularly appealing so i think when you see these robin hood characters or these pirate characters you in a sense are conjuring in your mind the materials the fabrics yeah. and i think using the sort of literary associations the swashbuckling and all yeah. of that to create something that is much more transformative and dramatic yeah and by the time you've decided that that's the Weldon's costume that you want you've got on the bus whatever it is to, to go and buy it and you realize that it's sort of nylon and shiny and itchy you've already in a sense made that commitment so yes like, yeah oh well or you made the commitment to such an extent that what it might actually look like in reality you're now blind you're to. blind to totally <laughs> yeah. but I think also what they do best or my favorite costumes from the Weldon stuff is actually not the ones which are the bog standard yep. Elizabethan bloke who could be Hamlet or whatever, or the perfect version of Robin Hood. It's always the ones that are sort of slightly wonky. So, yes. so in your lineup, I think the house that Jack built. Yes. There's actually something very pantomime about yeah. that costume. Yeah, she I mean, looks, the girl illustrated wearing it, looks very sort of 
well, like a principal boy, actually, yeah. isn't she? It's the thighs again. There's a sort of <laughs> thigh slapping moment I'm just desperate to do. It's nearly Christmas. And there's something really jaunty and carefree and all of the things that I think fancy dress yeah. should be about but, that. But I think actually you just saying that, which I'd never really clocked before because I was just glued to the costumes <laughs> or thighs apparently but it, it is the sort of poses that they're making with their sort of hand gestures sort of yeah, outstretched I love um, that and it almost reminds me I don't know where this sort of image has just come from but sort of early sort of travel brochures when you see the right. sort of right I don't know, airline sort of pilot, hostess, you know, that kind of... All those posters like, here I am in Cannes. Exactly. On a chaise. Yeah. And it it, It it is is like that. that. Yeah, it really is. There's nothing natural about it, which is probably why I love it. (laughs) (laughs) The sort of fantasy. But I think think also in, in all of these costumes that are being used, apart maybe from the house that Jack built, if we're thinking about sort of Hamlet or Ophelia, it's characters that, again, in their lives, as far as the the play or the the literature is concerned, where clothing plays such an important role. Right. So if we think about Hamlet, for example, there are numerous examples. You have the sort of speech from Polonius, and this is this sort of famous sort of line of apparel off proclaims the man. Yeah. But in terms of Ophelia uh, talking about the sort of degradation of Hamlet, there's that sort of wonderful description, isn't there, where she's talking in Act 2, where she says, My lord, as I was sewing in my chamber, Lord Hamlet, with his doublet all embraced, no hat upon his head, his stockings fouled, ungartered and dangived to the ankle, pale as his shirt, his knees knocking each other, and with a look so piteous in purport, as if he had been loosed out of hell to speak of horrors. Obviously, the Weldon's catalogue is not necessarily <laughs> conjuring with no, that. No, but the person wearing it might yeah. be channeling that. Exactly. And to I think the that, RSA standard. Yeah. You don't know. Indeed. Much like that delivery, Ben. <laughs> I, I was really trying. <laughs> We're going to um, get back into A level drama territory. Let's we, not. We are. Yeah, no, okay, right. I thought that was my I got into then. a lot of trouble for dredging up oh, the memory you? of our okay. A level drama for my peers. So. I shall refrain also. So do hold back. But interestingly, when I think about Ophelia, I think of of the Millet painting. Mm, For me, that's, to your point of like, when you think about Alice in Wonderland, you have an instant image in your head. I cannot, I I have nothing else for Ophelia, despite having seen many versions of that play. Nothing has stuck in my mind as the sort of perfect version of Mm. that as much as the Millet painting. And of course, he was a contemporary with Kate Greenaway. They studied together. Well, I don't know if they studied together, but they were certainly both at Heatherly School of Fine Art. So there we go. So, you know, it's all part of the same gang. Yeah. And again, this idea that in the sort of Victorian period where fancy dress is now regarded almost as an art form. Right. So it's natural that you would make these connections between a Shakespearean play, between literature, and then into costume. So that in some ways goes against what we've been saying in sort of previous episodes, the sort of snobbery around fancy dress. Here you've got the sort of apogee where it can be welcomed, embraced by the other arts, I suppose. And this is how, through the vehicle of fancy dress, you are maybe demonstrating your love of, your appreciation of these sort of classic And a deeper engagement with the text in a way, Mm. which is an interesting way in, isn't it? Mm. Also another play, in fact, of course, because Peter Pan, I always forget, started, you know, oh, that's of course true. it was a play. You know, we think mm. of it as a bedtime story, but... No, uh, you're right, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your example of Peter Pan theme. One of my favourite themes, I would like to say. Uh, yes. <laughs> so if you had a Peter Pan... Oh, I haven't, but oh, you know, my goodness. when we were researching this episode, I thought to myself, why haven't I? Yes. And 
don't you worry. Invitation <laughs> in the post, everybody. <laughs> no, so, yeah, the, the example I was thinking of, this actually might be a, a particularly good link in terms of the sort of riotous nature of this particular party. Going back to the bright young things and, of course, our patron saint for this podcast, <laughs> Cecil Beaton. Um, Whether or, he likes it or not. <laughs> exactly. We purloined him. Um <laughs> But DJ Taylor in his book about the bright young things talks about many of their evening shenanigans of which a lot evolved around costume. And he talks about a series of annual sort of New Year balls that were held. And in 1926, there was a Peter Pan party. And we don't have, as far as I'm aware, any photographs of this. So we do have to sort of conjure in our mind But Cecil Beaton made two costumes for his sisters, Nancy and Baba, and they won second and third prizes. Do we know who won first prize? No. Oh. No, I don't, actually. That's quite disappointing. It must have been really bloody good. I know, because the following year, Nancy and Baba, again, sort of true to form, I think are claiming prizes again, all because of sort of Beaton's... um, Of course, his... Sleight of hand. (laughs) Um, And I think what's really interesting about Beaton's involvement here is that through his sisters, who are essentially in some ways his avatars, them winning second and third prizes, this enables, in a sense, or guarantees his ascendancy. So it makes people more interested in, you know, what he's up to in terms of his costume designing, but also, of course, his photographic skills. So this is a great sort of boost for him. Of course. It's a brilliant vehicle. Yeah. And I think not least because a lot of the, although I'm not aware that any survived for this particular event, magazines, sort of glosses like The Sphere and The Graphic are publishing sort of photographs of these events. So this explains why Taylor, I think, in a really beautiful line, says that these balls were annual society events in which the newspapers took an obsequious interest. <laughs> but I think, you know, they're, they're, you know, there's a great deal of truth in that. These um, sort of riotous goings-on in the interwar period captivate people in a way, I suppose, that we've talked about in previous episodes, the sort of Met Gala or those sorts of big sort of showy occasions inspire our interest today, possibly. I mean, it's a long way from the Daily Mail sidebar of shame, though, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. (laughs) Born at the wrong time. (laughs) (laughs) If all those examples Mm. are of literature inspiring us in our costume choices, there's another link Mm. isn't there to a slightly different take on the relationship between literature and fancy dress outside in the real world i think so so moving now into non-fiction i think there is a distinction between the way that fiction and non-fiction can animate people i mean in some ways quite literally because of course in fiction our interpretation is very much inspired it's very much led by the author And so in that sense, if we're picking on a Robin Hood character or an Alice in Wonderland character, we know their plot arc. Whereas I think if we conjure with sort of stories from nonfiction, so the news or something, we can take something that is zeitgeisty, it's contemporary, it's relevant. But because it's in the present, we, in a sense, have greater agency in shaping that story. And I think a really good example of that comes from the 19th century, the end of the 19th century, and the case of Louise Passavant. And this was a a sort of story that came to my attention from the Leeds City Museum. And it's essentially a mother, Louise, who is very instrumental in dressing her two daughters for their fancy dress balls. By the 19th century, the great and the good are holding fancy dress balls. And that, in a sense, trickles down and legitimates it for everybody else. And there's one example in 1891 where 
Louisa is dressing her 16-year-old daughter, Nora, in a costume that is inspired by the Leeds Daily Press. And we might sort of think that's not very creative. We might or it's be... an unlikely source, perhaps. It is an unlikely source and maybe quite disappointing. But I think what's really interesting, and we'll put the image on Instagram, is that it's actually quite a striking dress, so of white silk. It's printed with the sort of skirt of the dress, is printed with titles from Leeds Daily Press newspaper. The gloves are tied with the knots of various sort of political colours of, of different parties, so the Conservatives and the Liberals at the time, and all topped off with a printer's cap. <laughs> but what's interesting, and why would a mother choose to dress her daughter in sort of newspaper-related sort of ephemera. Well, it's because, um, or so it's been suggested, that Louise Passavant was a journalist for the Leeds Daily Press. So there's a sense here that Louise, in, in sort of designing her daughter's costume, is using her daughter in some ways to demonstrate her agency as a sort of female writer, which at this time would not have been particularly common. And also, in a sense demonstrating a theme that we've sort of looked at before, but the idea that sort of children are often conduits for what their sort of adults or guardians want, in a sense, to convey. So, I mean, that's why you have them. Yes, no, absolutely. For fancy yeah. dress purposes. Yeah. That's what your GP says when you go. And <laughs> <laughs> you wee in the little thing, that's what they say. <laughs> they send you a Weldon's catalogue. Oh, that would be so amazing. And tell you to take... <laughs> couple of vitamins and you're on your way oh perfect that is my experience of parenting in a nutshell <laughs> sorry Ben go no, on. no 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 so I, I just sort of think this is a really interesting example of a costume that on the face of it seems as I said slightly odd suddenly creative but it is the way that it is being used to create a sort of personal narrative and again, I think demonstrating that, yes, fancy dress can be fun. There's frivolity there. But actually, I think here, the mother, Louise, is actually creating a very clear statement about her role. The costume is very exuberant. It's mm. a sort of almost a celebration of what, I think she's, so. yeah. what she's achieved. Yeah. Interestingly, though, that's almost exactly the same as Cecil Beaton using his sisters as mm. vehicles for actually for his ambition. Yeah. So there's a complete parallel in mm. terms of your personal narrative mm. using the body of someone else exactly. and your creativity mm. to kind of push actually your agenda. Yeah. They're sort of dummies for... Yeah. And I think, again, that's why possibly literature, so whether, well, literature in its broader sense, whether we're thinking about novels or plays or, or, or nursery rhymes, why that might lend itself to fancy dress. Because as we were talking about in our last episode about Rebecca the extent to which costume is just replete throughout that story, mm. the way that costume or clothing of any sort carries these personal sort of messages. Novels, stories animate that for us. It makes us possibly more inclined to see the communicative potential that our clothing has, I think. Right. Now, we haven't talked here about perhaps the most obvious link between literature and fancy dress, World Book Day. Yes. Or as most parents call it, bloody world book day. <laughs> but that's because we're going to do a very special episode on that particular pantomime in spring in order to coincide with, in fact, world book day. Obviously, children's books are the overwhelming trend in that situation. So you don't get many Shakespearean six-year-olds. No. It's mostly the Gruffalo or Roald Dahl or Harry Potter all the way. 
But if you have had a World Book Day triumph or a crisis, please share your stories with us on Instagram. We would love to include you in that show. Definitely. So have them rolling in. Remember, if you're a fan of this podcast, please review us on your podcast app, share and subscribe. Thanks to Mark, our editor, and to you all for listening. Join us next time for more costume drama.